driving down the road in Lansing, and this was kind of near downtown Lansing, and my car started to shake, and so I slowed down, and my front tire actually fell off. My car fell down, and the wheel went bouncing across the front yards of the houses that were there. I was able to steer the car to the side of the road, and there I just sat for a minute, and I got out of the car, and I did what I always do when something goes wrong, and that's I call my husband, because that's what I do. I don't know what else to do. But as I stood there, and I got out, and I looked at the car like I'm going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything with this. And I stood there for a minute and just was thinking, and all of a sudden, a gentleman walks up to me and starts talking to me. And immediately, I'm distracted and my mind is put at ease. Now, if I had to guess, based on the way this man looked, by the way the man spoke, and by the way the man smelled, I would say that he was homeless. But for probably 10 minutes, he stood there and talked to me about the problem with the car, and I had to engage really closely because I couldn't understand his words exactly. He even offered to go get the tire that was down in front of a house down the road. And as I look at this story and I think about it in the moment, I mean, that could have been really bad what had happened. But I was okay, and the car was, uh, was now okay. No one was injured. But I was thinking about this as I drove away from the scene. What if roles had been reversed? And what if I was passing that man whose car was broken down on the side of the road? Or if he looked like he needed help? Would I have stopped just as he did? He didn't even seem to give it a second thought. And you know what? I don't think I would have stopped. I think I would have judged him. I would think I would have acted like we're told to act to protect ourselves, to not get in a dangerous situation. And I don't think I would have stopped. Not knowing that I was going to be here this morning when Rod told me this message was on the Good Samaritan. That story just really resonated with me. Of all of Jesus' parables, none, I think, has worked its way deeper into the American consciousness than the parable of the Good Samaritan. It has become so much a part of our culture that people often refer to it without even realizing that they're talking about religion. The phrase the Good Samaritan is found today in many dictionaries because it's part of our common speech. And it's used to describe any person who goes out of their way to help another person. It's a theme that reporters love to feature because it captures the, the readers or their audience's attention and it excites the, their imagination. It's just people helping people. If you look it up in the dictionary or on Google, you will see that the top that the top three things listed are places that are to help people. So it's the Good Samaritan Medical Transport, the Good Samaritan Homeless Shelter, and the Good Samaritan Store. There are also Good Samaritan laws in Michigan. So it's clear that this idea is something that we are all familiar with. But the parable of the Good Samaritan says more than it's just good to help people in need. This parable, like most of Jesus' lessons, was born in the give and take of a discussion with respected community leaders. 
and it is ultimately about making excuses about self-justification and about letting yourself off the hook. Sometime during the Judean part of Jesus' ministry, we are not told exactly when and where, but Jesus encounters a lawyer, so he's a legal expert, a man skilled in interpreting the Jewish Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's fascinating to see that Luke places this incident directly following Jesus' statement, which is this. Father, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and them to the childlike. The children that Jesus is referring to are his disciples. They are his followers who have just learned about supernatural power in the name of Jesus. And now we meet these wise and learned people who are, rep- who are represented by a legal expert. And they are schooled in all the intricacies and interpretations of the law. A very, a very sophisticated scholar. So the children and the wise are then placed in sharp contrast. In Luke chapter 10, we read this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to the test of Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say, and how do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now this lawyer's question is a very important one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This question is asked again by the rich young ruler. And and he asked Jesus the same question in in chapter 18, verse 18. So in essence, he is asking Jesus to capsulize what is important for a Jew to do in order to find salvation. But Luke tells us that the lawyer has an underlying motive, and that is to test Jesus. So in this case, the lawyer isn't trying to tempt Jesus in the sense of trying to lead Jesus into sin. Rather, this skilled teacher of the law is testing Jesus this unofficial Galilean lay preacher, to see how well he will answer some of the difficult theological questions. This lawyer's motive could be just simple intellectual curiosity about Jesus' insight into the scriptures. But he has doubtless already heard Jesus speak and heard reports of Jesus' message. So his motive, more than likely, is to see if he can expose Jesus' simplicity in contrast to his own sophistication. So maybe it's an intellectual pride or just plain jealousy of Jesus' immense following that prompts this testing. We're not really sure. But Jesus will face many such challenges in the Judean phase of his ministry. He faces questions on paying taxes to Caesar, questions on divorce, questions on the resurrection, questions on doing some signs and miracles, and on stoning a woman caught in the act of adultery. 
In this case, and in others, however, Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, he appeals to the expert's self-perception on being authority, and he turns the question back on him. What does the law of Moses say, Jesus says? How do you read it? In essence, Jesus is saying, so you're the expert on the Torah. You tell me. What does your reading tell you is an answer to this question? Now, this legal expert's answer shows much insight. In fact, he agrees exactly with Jesus' own assessment of the Torah's core message, which is you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Here he's quoting both Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Jesus compliments him on his answer. He says, right. Do this and you will live, Jesus says. That must be the end of the story. Well, not quite. Notice what has just happened. In the balance of this relationship between the expert and the novice, Jesus now assumes the role of expert on the law, commenting on the rightness and wrongness of another person's interpretation. The lawyer has sought to test Jesus. The lawyer who has sought to test Jesus is now himself being tested and evaluated. But when you think about it, Jesus' compliments is remarkable. So often, Jesus has had to deal with the Pharisees whose understanding of the law is all out of proportion. They emphasize the minor details, and they have neglected the bigger picture. But this man does see the bigger picture. He understood, or so it would seem, the justice, mercy, and faithfulness of the that the Pharisees so often neglected. The lawyer asked this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And then he recites what Jesus has termed the great commandment, to love God and to love one's neighbor. Jesus says, if you do this, you will live. Now some writers have looked at this story and said that Jesus seems to be advocating a salvation that is based on good works. But that's not really the case at all. The real issue is, it's what is the core message of the scripture. It's to love God and to love your neighbor. But the story doesn't end there. In verse 29 we read, The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? The power of God the power of the truth that the lawyer has just spoken is too much for him. And by his own words, he has correctly stated the heart of the gospel message as well as the Old Testament law, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And now he's starting to feel convicted by it. After all, he was likely thinking of an Old Testament verse that limits the definition of neighbor says, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is from Leviticus 19.18. So, 
in a typical lawyer fashion, this lawyer seeks to defend his, de his position by closely defining his words. What is the definition of neighbor? He asked Jesus. At this point, we see an exchange between a pair of rabbis teacher, and teachers of the law. One has started the essence of the law, and the other has acknowledged the truth of the answer. Now the first asks the second to clarify the answer. The rabbinical writings of the Talmud are full of carefully reasoned legal distinctions about when the law is in effect and when it is not. So the Jews typically interpreted neighbor to mean members of the same people and religious community. That is, they'd be fellow Jews. And the Pharisees tended to exclude ordinary people from their definition. So the lawyer agrees that the essence of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. But then he seeks to limit the application of this to fellow Jews only. He's basically saying love your own race in your own faith community. If you do this, then he believes that you have fulfilled the law. Luke tells us that his first motive is to test Jesus, and his second motive is to justify himself, to defend his own limited interpretation of the Torah. Here is a scholar that is struggling with integrity between his beliefs and his actions. In reply to all of this, Jesus then tells a story. Now, if someone were to ask you the definition of a neighbor, you might respond with a carefully worded definition, the kind of phrase that you might find in Webster's Dictionary. But Jesus answers with a parable. And parables are stories that are told to make a point. They aren't actual history, but they capture true-to-life details in such a way that the hearers can actually identify with the elements of the story and they can grasp the spiritual lesson of that story. So there was no actual Good Samaritan that Jesus is referring to. But he is calling upon his hearers' awareness of the dangers of traveling alone on the Jericho to Jerusalem road. And from there, presenting a hypothetical situation that was designed to make a point. Verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. So Jerusalem is located along the ridge of coastal mountains running north and south in Palestine. Jericho, on the other hand, is located on the plain of the Jordan River in a geological rift zone hundreds of feet below sea level. So that 17-mile road connects these two cities, and it descends some 3,000 feet through the desert, desert and rocky countryside that could easily hide bandits. The robbers on the Jericho Road were pretty desperate. Even if a man had little of value, they would still attack him for the value of the clothing. But they didn't just threaten him and take his clothing. They stripped him of all of his clothing, and then they beat him, most likely using clubs. They beat him in order to incapacitate him from following them 
or perhaps to intimidate him from trying to identify them. Apparently, they didn't seek to kill him, however. Jesus says that they left him literally half dead. And Jesus isn't talking about an actual man, of course, but adding some of these details in order to point to to paint a picture. His listeners are now eager to see what happens to the unfortunate man. The story continues in verse 31. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Jesus places his places in his story two well-known figures in society, the priest and the Levite. The priest would be returning to Jericho from service in the temple at Jerusalem. And Jericho was known as a principal residence for the priests. In New Testament times, the Levites were an order of religious officials, inferior to the priest, but still a privileged group in society. They were responsible for the for the liturgy in the temple and for policing the temple. While both the priest and the Levites were from the tribe of Levi, they were descendants of Jacob's son Levi. The priests were also descendants of Aaron, the very first high priest. In Jesus' story, both the priest and the Levite see the wounded man, and they pass on the other side of the road. They see the man's need, but they choose not to help. This sounds typical, is probably what Jesus' hearers were thinking. In all likelihood, there were various anti-clergy stories circulating among the people. And you can almost see Jesus' hearers nodding and smiling at the negative character of the priest and the Levite. I'm sure that legends of hypocritical clergy have circulated in every generation. Some, however, believe that the priest and the Levite might have had some justification for their actions. After all, as temple officials, they were especially concerned about ceremonial cleanliness. The law stated that the high priest must not defile himself by going near a dead body, and he may not make himself ceremonial unclean, even for his father or his mother. So even a regular priest would even a regular priest would also be unclean if he touched something that was defiled by a corpse. So, what if that man laying beside the road were dead? The man may not have been moving at all, and one can't be too careful, you know. The Pharisees held that a priest would not be defiled by touching a dead body when there was no, no one else available to available to perform the burial. But the Sadducees, which may have included some of the priests, contended that he would be defiled. So it was a dilemma. On one hand, the law is pretty clear about helping those who are in need, both man and beast, friend and foe. So you're supposed to help even if they are your enemy. If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. 
Proverbs 24, 17. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. And then in Proverbs 25, we read, If your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. You will heap burning coals of shame on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. And, of course, the very verse the lawyer had quoted to make the priests and the Levites' obligations clear is found in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Placing religious purity over helping a person was perhaps still alive, or a person who was perhaps still alive, is gross hard-heartedness and selfishness. And walking on the other side of the road displays a deliberately, I don't want to know, kind of attitude. The less they saw about the man's condition, the less they would feel obligated to help him. After all, he might already be dead, so there would be nothing that they would be obligated to do. Our modern-day equivalent of this kind of attitude is, I just don't want to get involved. A priest, a Levite, and the hearers would be expecting, would be expecting a Jewish layperson to be the third and climactic character of the story. But no. Instead, Jesus introduces a Samaritan. The Samaritans were particularly hated in Jesus' day. They lived in an area south of Galilee and north of Judea, part of the old northern kingdom of Israel. And in 1721 B.C., Israel was conquered by Assyria, which led to the mass deportation of the entire region, carrying off some 27,000-plus captives and resettling the area with colonists from other parts of the Assyrian Empire. Their descendants were looked upon as half-breeds and heretics by the Jews of Jerusalem. Those Samaritans believed in the Torah. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than Jerusalem. And at times, the relations between the Jews and the Samaritans had been civil. But in Jesus' day, feelings were definitely hostile. Sometime between 6 and 9 AD, at midnight during Passover, some Samaritans had deliberately scattered bones in, in the Jerusalem temple in order to desecrate it. And the Jews were outraged, and what remained was now disdain and hatred. And forever after, the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. For Jesus to introduce the Samaritan as a caring person after the priest and Levite had neglected mercy must have been intended as an especially biting commentary on what passed for mercy among the pillars of Judaism. In verse 33, the story continues, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan traveler doesn't move over to the other side of the road. The wound, he takes pity on him. And the word pity is translated to feel sympathy from the inward part. 
from the seat of our emotions, and from the heart. Love, sympathy, and mercy are motivated by the need of another, while withholding mercy is essentially an act of selfishness and self-protection. Verse 34. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. The Samaritan bandages, binds up the wounds of this injured man, perhaps with his own head covering or by tearing strips of his own garment. The Samaritan also pour, pours oil and wine as healing agents. Olive oil was widely employed to keep part, exposed parts of the skin supple, to, re, to relieve chafing and to soften wounds, and to heal bruises and lacerations. Wine, perhaps, was poured on for cleansing. And although they had no knowledge of germ theory back then, we know that wine, which ferments to about 7% to 15% alcohol, would have had some disinfectant properties. Then, the man put on, put, then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If this bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. The Samaritan's love of his neighbor proved costly. He used his own supplies to cleanse and soothe the man's wounds, his own clothing to bandage him, his own animal to carry him while the Samaritan himself walked, his own money to pay for his care, and his own reputation and credit to vouch for any further expenses that the man's care would require. Here's the point. Love can be costly. But if we have the means to help, we are to extend ourselves. The Apostle Paul taught that if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in, in need, but shows no compassion, how can God, God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. There wasn't an emergency room where the Samaritan could take the man. Instead, he took him to like a motel where he cared for the man that night. It seems likely that the Samaritan was a merchant who frequently traveled this way and stayed at, his own, at this inn before. He trusted the innkeeper enough to advance him money to care for the wounded man, and he promises the innkeeper, who also seems to trust the Samaritan, to reimburse him for any additional cost when he returns from his trip. The Samaritan's mercy is a generous mercy. It's a mercy that doesn't just keep the letter of the law, but its spirit as well. Whatever he needs, take care of it. Verse 36, the story continues. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Now here's where Jesus punches home his point. He asked the lawyer which of these three provided to be a neighbor to the wounded man. And the lawyer is forced to reply, 
the one who showed him mercy. In the classical Greek understanding of mercy, it was an emotion stirred up by coming in contact with someone who had an affliction which they didn't deserve. And mercy results in faithfulness and in human kindness and pity. Jesus commands his disciples very specifically, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. The lawyer began by asking a definition of the word neighbor in order to justify limiting his love to fellow Jews only. But Jesus doesn't define neighbor in so many words. But his story makes it clear that our neighbor is whoever has a need, and it doesn't matter who they are. Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves knows no self-satisfying And in verse 37, then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Jesus isn't content just just to define what neighbor means. He commands us all to do as the Samaritan does, to show mercy for our fellow human beings who are in need. Are Christians to be do-gooders? Yeah, I guess, I suppose. But our motivation for doing good must be love for others, an interest in meeting their basic needs, a heart of mercy, that is moved by compassion. Okay. So what are we, as disciples of Jesus, supposed to learn from the story? For me, the answer for each of us is to examine our own hearts. What motivates us? How much have, how much have selfishness and an adherence to our own agenda leached away the mercy that Jesus holds dear and wants to grow in our heart through his Holy Spirit. We may be efficient, but are we merciful? And when push comes to shove, do we put ourselves first or do we put the needs of others first? For me, Jesus' command, now go and do the same, means that I must value acts of mercy over thinking of only myself. What does it mean for you? Let's pray. Father, the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that sometimes we seek to justify our own selfishness. We are a lot like the lawyer. We've studied much and know a great deal about theology and the Bible. But knowledge isn't what you seek. It's our hearts that you seek. And the acts of love and mercy that should flow freely out of our heart. Forgive us, Lord, for our selfishness. Forgive us for excusing ourselves. And let your flame of love and mercy flare up afresh in our hearts and consume our selfish tendencies. We pray this as a disciple in Jesus' name. Amen.